Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. So thank you very much, uh, Toby, for taking the time today to come and talk to us on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, it's a pleasure, Fergal. Lovely to speak with you. Great. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Innovation Forum and maybe the background? I know you've been involved in in, in this whole area for uh, several decades, shall we say. (laughs) Well, not quite several decades, but um, approaching two decades, um, I find it scarily uh, scary to, to remind myself of that sometimes. Um, so I started out, I suppose, in I suppose in about 2001, uh, more or less a couple of years out of university. I'd uh, started a tech business um, doing conferences that had done rather well, but was incredibly dull. Um, but it did have lots of ethical issues in it and sort of corporate governance crises related issues that came up within it. Um, and so that I used that as a sort of springboard to um, to start a conference company and magazine, which I ran for a long time, um, from 2001 to 2014. Um, and then my my colleagues and I uh, left that business and started Innovation Forum. And there's quite a, quite a few reasons why we did that. Um, but one of the reasons was that we were sort of trapped in a model of old school CSR, um, and we really wanted to focus on innovation. Because innovation is a word that's just as vague and just as blurry as sustainability or CSR, but gets people much more excited. Uh, and so we thought, actually, let's do a new company where we don't have the old shareholder problem. And uh, let's focus entirely on the most difficult questions that companies face, uh, particularly in supply chains. And let's create some fora and do some publishing and uh, do lots of audio publishing as well. Uh, around these difficult questions and uh, and that's how we got started nearly nearly five years ago now and so now we we run a number of annual conferences meeting places which we hope are unlike other conferences you might go to uh, in the sense that we don't have any powerpoint we don't have boring speeches we don't have people reading from flashcards. Um, it's all about discussion and i actually say to a lot of our speakers who come to our conferences that I, I would rather they didn't prepare because if they're good enough, then they should be able to talk off the cuff and have a discussion. And that's where the most interesting innovations and ideas come from rather than people turning up with material prepared in advance that they want to communicate at. This is much more about having a dialogue. So um, to cut a long story short, we, we do that about at 10 times a year in, in different parts of the world and the focus at the moment uh, although we have bigger plans for next year is around agricultural supply chains smallholder farming commodities human rights forced labor modern slavery those sorts of very difficult issues that companies face so um, those are the conferences more or less um, along with an apparel conference we do on sustainable apparel and then our publishing our podcasts our webinars they're, they're all there free on the internet at innovationforum.co.uk for everybody to uh, just kind of draw them into our, our community, our circle. So that's that's us, really. Right, great. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that uh, you, coming from a, uh, a corporate perspective, looking at it, the questions that corporates face 
And um, I guess the assumption here is that, you know, companies are, you know, have to deal with uh, these questions. I mean, a lot of the time people talk about these uh, or seem to seem to look at these questions from, uh, shall we say, an environmental uh, uh, perspective. They look at the scale of the you know, problems of biodiversity or climate change and things like that. And then they start looking for solutions. I get the impression that you built relationships and understand corporate agenda, I mean, what you call the CSR as it was once upon a time and has been evolving, whatever you want to call it today. Um, can you give me a sense of, you know, what is driving, I mean, it's a very general question, what do you think is driving uh, the, 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 so we call it sustainability, but the uh, initiatives and the focus of companies to deal with these problems? Well, it's a great question, Fergal. I mean, um, and I don't want to give a disconcertingly vague answer by saying it's lots of things. Um, but it is, unfortunately, lots of things. Um, you know, we have generational change and, and consumer expectations. We have communication technology that means, you know, um, it, it's almost possible. And indeed, some cases it's possible to, you know, watch modern slavery happening live on your phone um, with with satellite uh, and and other technologies that enable um, communication. There are increased regulatory drivers, um, disclosure drivers, for example, um, around all sorts of issues from modern slavery, uh, increasingly towards um, greenhouse gas emissions and, and that kind of thing. So um, there are lots of drivers out there. And I think a lot of companies are also just sort of looking at the, the, the climate science and they're saying, that they, you know, it's a terrible cliche, but they're saying, you know, they want to be on the right side of history. Um, and I published a, a blog post uh, about six months ago and, and many of my friends and colleagues said I was reaching, but I, I was suggesting that populist demagogues like Donald Trump are actually quite helpful for the sustainability agenda um, in the long term because they force companies to take sides and they force companies to say very clearly what they stand for and, and what they expect. Um, now, I wouldn't go so far as to say Brexit is a good thing in, the, in that regard, um, but um, I, I think anything that gives companies clarity uh, about where they can go is incredibly helpful. And, and we see a number of those different factors all coming together now that, that I think are providing big companies with more clarity around this traceability, transparency agenda, and then the technologies and innovations that are going to enable that. Yes, it's interesting you say that because I, I know there is tremendous momentum in, in America There's through, the, through cities, through states, and as you say, through corporations as well, in taking the initiative and continuing to you know, move forward on these issues, irrespective of the standing the position of the, the U.S. government and so forth, um, which is, um, you know, I, I guess, uh, very inspiring. At, at the heart of this question, I guess, is a question, you know, uh, it's old chestnut, I suppose, to what extent uh, companies are doing this because there's a business case. I've seen some research, uh, I spoke to uh, a, a chap called Daniel Nyberg, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with his work, but he, he looked at... Uh, over 10 years of uh, five very large Australian companies and their sustainability initiatives. And what he really uh, found was, was quite depressing, really, is that over a period of time, the initiatives uh, gave way to you know, business as usual. And what he really is saying is that, that, that you know, when things are good and um, when uh, issues don't really... Uh, sustainability issues don't conflict with the bottom line. That's fine, and we can see some, uh, you know, uh, movement and, and momentum in places. But fundamentally, when a 
boils down to some to the, the anything that that interferes with this mandate, which is you know, which is I guess a discussion we could have in any case of a question about how, how you know the, this maximizing profits, you know, fiduciary role, all about around that. But you know, to the degree that that's authentic and and legally you know uh, got, got merit and so forth. But just. Uh, when he, what his research showed is when these issues conflicted with uh, shareholder uh, maximizing shareholder returns, they gave away. To what extent does that surprise you? Sure. Um, no, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, if we look at the capitalist model, which has done so well for for some people, um, and for well, I think probably for a large majority of people, you know, it has these externalities. And it has this shareholder-driven desire for dividends, profits, whether that's you know private equity groups saying that four years is a long time for, to hold an investment or to work with a company, or whether it's you know pension funds demanding their you know their dividend for their for their aging baby boomer pensioners. You know that there is a lot of short-termism around. So I think when it, when you think about the business case, I think in a macro sense. Com- companies, although you can't really call them a monolithic entity, executives in large companies, I would say, would broadly understand um, that there is a business case in the macro sense. So when you think about population growth, when you think about climate change, when you think about biodiversity loss, when you think about ocean plastic pollution, you know, the big picture I think everybody gets now. Um, and, and on the other end of the scale, there's a micro business case in the sense of if you're a big supermarket and you want to make sure that you're going to have avocados next year, you need to make sure that those avocado plantations in northern Mexico aren't causing massive deforestation, um, could could be shut down by the government for being illegal and could decimate your avocado supply chain when, when you're making a lot of money out of it. Um, equally, if you're a mining company, um, that you know, a community around an asset could be worth billions of dollars in that if that community shuts down that asset, which has happened in many cases, then you no longer have that, that asset and access to that that income or that resource. So the micro business case on specific issues in the supply chain, I think companies can get the macro case they get. The problem we have is kind of this this big middle um, whereby companies are still asked for these um, short term returns. Um, you know, and I think famously Winston Churchill said something like, you know, democracy is the least worst system of government um, or something like that. And, and I think we've, we've discovered that with capitalism. It's uh, the least worst. Um, because we, we tried a lot of the others and they, they haven't worked so well. Um, intriguingly, of course, we are seeing more of the sort of rise of the state company. Again, everybody said these companies were dead 15 years ago, but there are more and more of them around now. And, and they have a slightly different perspective. Some of them, if they get it, are allowed to take a longer term perspective. But equally, some of them are the most blinkered and short sighted companies in the world. So we, we haven't solved that problem yet, unfortunately, Fergal. Uh, what, what I think we're starting to do is understand that there are lots of pieces of the puzzle that need to come together. And I think the sort of we haven't put the puzzle together yet, but the puzzle's spread out on the floor and we can all kind of see where it's headed. Uh, we can see what the picture needs to look like. It's just the messy business of getting there. And, uh, and I think generational change in executives is playing a huge role. You know, there are these myths that abound that companies and financial institutions have a fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder value. That has never been true. Um, it has never been true. It became received wisdom 
um, for, for a number of reasons, which we could go into a longer conversation about. But it has never been true. But it became popularized, you know, by, by the University of Chicago, Harvard Business Review, the MBA course, which everybody must do apparently these days. Um, and, and so getting rid of that idea that just maximizing value is a duty of a corporate executive or a financial executive, that is, that is I think, one of the biggest barriers. Um, and that's taking time. But I think we're getting there slowly. Well, yes, yes. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, that you, you mentioned that because I had a conversation with Jake Cohn uh, Gilbert from B Corps and uh, B Corporations. And, and we talked about this. And there does seem to be, you know, quite uh, a lot of momentum. About you know the legitimacy of this question, you know, as you say, that you know what is the legal uh, standing of this issue? And he said, well, be that as it may, he said, you know, uh, ultimately the Supreme Court in Delaware that calls this decision, and no matter what you know has been written in Harvard or any you know leading thinkers about you know uh, these questions, he said, you know, this is the way it's been read today in Delaware, and that's what matters. And it does just connect to investors. To what extent are they on your radar, and to what extent do they do? Do you look at the impact that they could have or might have on, on, on some of these issues? Well, that's a great, another great question. I mean, I, I've been sort of, I know, reading and writing news on this, this area since well, 2001 or so. And I remember back in about 2002, there used to be a piece of news we'd publish every week, sort of pointing out that investors were getting more interested in, in this stuff. And yet here we are all those years later. And you know, the Black Rock letter, which is famously sent out every year, you know, adds an extra sentence or two asking companies to do a bit more, please. But we haven't seen the revolution yet. Uh, so I think I think where we're headed um, is 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 the is that the examples we're seeing now of innovation in, in financial instruments, I would hope, will end up becoming simply the way we do business when the resource constraints that we're all starting to face become more obvious. I'll give you a really good example. Um, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a lady called Elizabeth Ipper from BNP Paribas, big French bank. And she was talking about the financial incentives being being created for palm oil companies um, by not only BNP Paribas, but also by, uh, bizarrely, but, but wonderfully, a Chinese bank, which had said to one large company, I believe it's Wilmar, you know, if if you hit these sustainability targets, you will pay less for this finance. But if you miss those targets, you will pay more. And those instruments are starting to become used by Chinese banks. They're starting to be looked at very seriously or used by banks like BNP Paribas. And, and so it's, it's taken time for these things to be created. And it's, of course, it's, you know, it's a big super tanker to change, as, as with the previous question. But we're starting to see the kind of innovations that can make sense in a boardroom. Right, that's uh, interesting. Now, what, what's the logic of that for BMP or this, this Chinese bank? I mean, to what extent is its you know financial welfare going to be impacted by this, or to what extent does it define its you know broader stakeholder uh, goals, such as to include you know this extremely important issue, which I, I I'd like to talk to you about shortly, palm oil. Yeah, um, so I don't know exactly. I mean, the Chinese bank, I don't remember the name of them. Um, it's, it's out there on the internet if you, if you Google, you know, Wilmar plus, uh, you know, sustainable finance or Chinese bank or something, you'll, you'll find it. Um, the BNP uh, interview I did, it seemed very clear to me that this is something that BNP takes very seriously as a, you know, as a French bank, as a, a global actor, as a signatory or a, an organization that's signed up to the, the values and targets of, of, uh, you know, global climate change commitments, 
that they feel this is just part of the innovative process they'll need. And I, and I think there are other innovations happening in finance as well. It's just we don't hear about them very much because banks either feel or are genuinely constrained in what they can say. So I would imagine there's actually more stuff happening than we know about. There are other banks probably doing this that we don't know about, but it takes time for everybody to feel confident to talk about it. Because for some reason, when you're in the financial world, everything becomes a lot more secretive and apparently risky. Although I've never quite understood why, because they're always, they're always happy to talk about it when they want to talk about it. But, you know, that's, that's another conversation. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, can we talk about sustainable palm oil? Maybe just a little bit what, what the scale of the problem is. Any lessons on, in terms of, you know, dealing with issues like this? Well, it's a fascinating area. And, it, and in fact, um, the reason I kept you waiting for, the, for this interview, and I apologize again, Fergal, was that I was on the phone talking about sustainable soy um, with, with an organization that's convened great number of companies around sustainable soy and in, in the soy area i think they're looking very closely at what's happened in palm oil and they're trying to avoid the pitfalls that that palm oil has demonstrated for for groups like those and you know it's a very complicated difficult issue as they all are in sustainability um but i think what we have started to see now is a need for companies to demonstrate that their policies around sustainable palm oil are actually having an impact uh, on the ground and are not getting lost in the convoluted mix that, that certification uh, can create in the supply chain. Right, right. Can I just step back for a second? Just how, how big an issue is this and why are companies concerned? Sure, I guess palm oil is a big issue because um, it's grown enormously in the last 15 years because, I mean, we wanted to move away from trans fats and vegetable oil. Palm oil... Um, is seen as a health was seen as a healthier alternative. Um, it costs about half the amount of equivalent oils. So palm oil is about six hundred dollars a ton. Sunflower oil, rapeseed oil are about double that, more or less. It varies. Um, and of course, as these emerging markets boomed, so did the demand for vegetable oil. And so palm oil in the last fifteen years has ended up in everything. You know, you open your kitchen cupboard, you open your bathroom cupboard. Um, you will almost everything you see will have palm oil in it. Well, not almost everything, but an awful lot of food products and shampoo and cosmetic products will have palm oil in. In cosmetics, it's the kernel of the palm fruit because it has a particular oil, which is then sort of changed by, by doing something called creating fractions. And why is um, it a problem to have so much palm oil? Well, because they've cut down, um, they've cut down an awful lot of forest. Right. A big driver of deforestation, very, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge driver of deforestation. Now, the palm oil industry will tell you today they are no longer the biggest driver of deforestation in the world. They will tell you that they are, in fact, number three, and that number one is beef and cattle, and that number two is soy, and that palm oil is coming in third. But, you know, it's hardly, it's hardly an achievement to be the third worst person in the room, is it, really? So why are companies uh, paying attention to this now? Why is it important to them? Well, I think there was a big turning point in about 2010 or so when Greenpeace fairly or otherwise humiliated Nestle uh, with their famous Kit Kat video. And if you want to see that video, you should go on Google or YouTube and just put Nestle plus Kit Kat video plus Greenpeace. And you'll see the, the, the infamous video of the orangutan finger, um, which really got the attention uh, of Nestle and other companies and created this kind of impetus to, to have targets around zero deforestation and supply chains. The biggest driver of which at the time, uh, along with, with Amazon deforestation, was palm oil. Uh, and so 
it's become a well-known product in the sense that, you know, if I go and have dinner with my mother, you know, she understands what's going, you know, she'll say, oh, isn't palm oil terrible? What's happening with it? And I'll say to her, well, yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's the most incredible crop in the world for producing oil in an efficient way with very limited land use. If you want to make the same kind of oil from other, um, other fruits or plants, you're going to need two or three times as much land which we don't really have. Um, so when palm oil is done well, it is a phenomenal crop in that it creates wealth for smallholder farmers. It has fewer trans fats than we had before. And it's, it's, you know, it's cheap and it can be environmentally the best, one of the best options we've got. The problem is that it's all happened so quickly that vast amounts of land have been devastated. And if you fly over southern or eastern Sumatra in a helicopter, which I did a few years ago, all you can see as far as the eye goes is, is oil palm. Uh, and then, of course, you get the fires and the smog uh, and, and, the, and the other issues there around, around climate change and, and human health, particularly. So, it's, you know, it's been very controversial, but I, I, I wouldn't point out that palm oil is a bad thing. You know, when done well, it's, it's a great thing. But unfortunately, it's been done en masse and a lot of quite dodgy people, I think it's fair to say, have been involved and got quite rich out of it. Now, um, so when people sit down to, 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 to start to look at this problem, as you say, after this kind of wake up call, were there other uh, uh, models of, of you know, governance or certification or ways of dealing with this? Or was it kind of de novo had to be kind of invented? Uh, and I could talk a little bit about, you know, the different parties that came to, together on this. I mean, is there a, a international governance, a global governance uh, that, that, that kind of looks after this? No, I mean, you know, there, there's no global governance for any commodity that I know of. I mean, it's kind of impossible, I think, without without global government. And I don't think any of us would, would want that. Um, so, no, there isn't. I mean, what there is is the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, which was created in 2004, I believe, by Unilever, WWF and others. And, and that has, I think, stumbled its way to where we are today. And uh, on our website is a really interesting piece we, we worked very hard on, published last week, about where we're at with RSPO. And um, on the one hand, it tries to be a platform for change. But on the other hand, it wants all the signatories to sign up to buy certified sustainable palm oil under its system, which some people is not the best system and still allows for deforestation under the current standard. So it can get very complicated, but um, we've effectively had to, in many ways with these different commodities, particularly in palm oil, invent from scratch a kind of voluntary um, governance system which has become mandatory for anybody who wants to be a big player in the market now don't get me wrong there's an awful lot of palm oil that doesn't have anything to do with uh with the rspo that simply goes uh to india and china and pakistan and elsewhere and is refined there and doesn't even pass through the mills so um with rspo and all the big companies we're still we're talking about we're still only talking about uh, a fairly small proportion of global palm oil supply. 70, 80% of it goes off and is, and, you know, is not traced or tracked or, or even heard of by the Western consumer. So it is unfortunately a complex picture. And I, I apologize if I've, if I've confused the, uh, confused the, the listener here, but it, I encourage you to go to our website, innovation forum and have a look for the recent piece we did, which may explain uh, with greater lucidity what, what I've been trying to say in the last couple of minutes. Now, can you talk a little bit about the situation in India and in China, Toby? Well, it's really difficult. I mean, India, for example, is a really big challenge, right? So the demand for palm oil in India has gone through the roof. Um, there are all sorts of health implications with uh, use of this vegetable oil because it gets reused, and that's really bad for human health. 
uh, it's a slightly different matter. But effectively, people want cheap vegetable oil. Um, and as people get richer uh, or they get less poor, in the case of India, um, their demand for vegetable oil goes up. And um, if you spent any time in India and eating food there, you, you notice it's a key part of the diet. And, and so nobody really knows how to tackle that challenge, to be honest. Um, in China, we're starting to see, you know, Kofco, the big, the big Chinese conglomerate agribusiness company, they have a zero deforestation policy, uh, but they don't have a huge team of people working on it. And we've not really seen much progress there. So I think we're starting to see the early stages uh, of, of being interested in this issue in China. Last year, I think Solidaridad, the NGO, took some Chinese executives to Indonesia to show them what it looks like. But it's going to be a long, hard road. Um, and we're now running out of land in Southeast Asia to develop oil palm on. Uh, and at the same time, lots of oil palm trees now need to be replaced, which creates a three or four or five year hiatus while, they, while the new trees come on stream, so to speak. And that could create pressures elsewhere. So it's a complex picture. And you know, I encourage any listener, if they want to engage in one of the most fascinating areas in the world, uh, you know, get yourself a Google search alert for sustainable palm oil and you will, you know, you'll never be short of, a, of intellectual um, challenge there while you're, while you're reading about it. Yes, um, and insomnia extreme. Um, and uh, you, so you mentioned the zero deforestation goal. That would seem to include a, a, a range of other uh, issues. I mean, as you say, the palm oil and other... What, what, is that is that evolving? Is that is has that got some teeth? Well, it hasn't really got teeth. I mean, there's been a number of drivers for it. You know, there's something called the Amsterdam Declaration. There's a New York Declaration on Forests. Uh, there are uh, the Consumer Goods Forum commitments, and they're all based around. A lot of them are based around 2020 targets for zero deforestation uh, in supply chains. But first of all, we've had a big argument about what zero deforestation actually means, because in some cases, it's not clear and it's not always um, advisable to say no one should cut any trees down because as somebody keeps pointing out, or as various people keep pointing out in the debates we have, hungry people will cut down forests. So until you solve that problem, coming back to your earlier point about human rights and the environment slightly being separate now coming together, um, if you want to solve deforestation, you've got to solve poverty issues and corruption and governance issues. And that's where companies are really struggling. So all these big companies, I think there are about 500 of them now, have zero deforestation commitments. Uh, if you ask me how many of them are going to meet those targets genuinely by 2020, I would say zero. Uh, and that is going to be a big issue as we approach 2020, because the NGOs, the campaigning NGOs like Greenpeace and Rainforest Action Network and others may well use these, these failings as a stick with which to beat companies. Um, on the other hand, you could argue that if we didn't have 2020 targets, we wouldn't have made anything like the progress we've been making so far. And, you know, some people will say, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to set a target you know you're not going to hit because it's too ambitious. Because uh, if you set a target that was any later or any lower, you wouldn't get anywhere near where you would get otherwise. Yes, yes. I know there's a lot, of, a lot of talk about different kinds of goals and things that, I mean, um, is this in a sense... Uh, broadly, would you categorize this as a kind of a self-regulatory initiative? You talk about the corporates that are at the heart of some of these initiatives and so forth. Generally speaking, uh, many people are skeptical of self-regulation in various 
forms. Um, what what is needed here? I mean, as you mentioned, for a, a lot of these issues, they're global, and you know there there aren't governance mechanisms um, to to deal with global issues like that. How how does the regulation piece fit in there? Um, I guess talking more specifically about this this the the, the palm oil because it's probably the the, the, the when we talked about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's going to come down to the national level, really. I mean, at the EU level, we've seen um, demands for the banning of uh, the use of palm oil in biofuels uh, by um, 2024 or, or earlier. Um, and of course, the, 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 the whole idea of the life cycle of biofuels and whether or not they are actually good for the environment is, is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. It's by no means sorted. I mean, you look at the biomass discussions it's by no means agreed that biomass is carbon neutral um and similarly with with burning vegetable oil in in diesel engines is it really good for the environment is it really good uh, as, as a you know as an alternative um maybe it just causes other problems so the whole biofuels bit is going to be continually contentious and and where, where the closest you have to any kind of global governance there will be the eu's decision about biofuels uh, coming into the eu and, and the role of palm oil in that in terms of other governance mechanisms, you know, most countries, apart from is it the US and Nicaragua, have signed up to the Paris Climate Change Agreement. I think Nicaragua did and then pulled out or something. Um, so as, as the US has said that they're going to do. And of course, under the, uh, the Paris Agreement, countries have to create their own plans to tackle climate change. And part of that, of course, is going to be reducing emissions from deforestation. Uh, and from from land use and agriculture and so one would hope that um, the Indonesian government the Malaysian government the Brazilian government will will find a way to uh, to create credible targets I think many of them have already done that uh, and then enforce them and make them happen but of course that is a huge challenge for those countries uh, where often politicians rely on the votes of poor farmers uh, and don't want to let them down and are also often supported financially by big agribusiness, which has a, you know undue power and influence in a lot of these countries. So there is potential in every country for them to enforce uh, laws which are often similar to any other country, um, but uh, it's going to take a while to make that happen, unfortunately. Yes, yes. Why did you decide to focus on agro-supply chains particularly? Well, it's the most interesting way to spend my career, I think. Uh, I couldn't think, I can't think of anything else more interesting to do. I keep thinking about doing more stuff in the tech industry again, and we are going to do some more there. But I mean, and, and there are massive ethical questions, you know, which, which we're starting to grapple with at Innovation Forum around artificial intelligence and robotics and automation and drones and all this stuff. Um, but if you want to think, talk about, you know, people's lives today, uh, you don't get anything more interesting than, than agribusiness supply chains, um, because talking about some of the smallest, some of the, some of the poorest people in the world who I've been and met, you know, in Southeast Asia, I've met them in Brazil, I've met them in Africa, and you can see the difference some of these programs can make to their lives. Um, so you start to see a connection between a cocoa farmer on a dollar a day in Ghana and somebody buying a chocolate bar in a petrol station in London. Uh, and, and so that, that, for me, is the most fascinating uh, area to look at that I, that I think I could spend my career on. But if you, if you do find something else, Virgil, let me know. Maybe I should switch. Um, well, I, w I won't talk about wine, um, Toby. Uh, it seems to have a parallel um, uh, uh, preoccupation that keeps you keeps you going. I'm just thinking about uh, coming back to this question of of you know these uh, agro supply chains. Where are we on the journey? I mean, uh, clearly uh, transparency is a huge part of this um, for all supply chains. Really, um, another big question here. Are there any general comments you can make about 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 the, the you know the, the momentum 
in terms of the scale of, of, of the issue. You mean in, in other agricultural commodities or in, in yes, general? Yes, yeah, because it's, you know, each commodity has its own, you know, very specific and complex, you know, range of you know, challenges and, and, and suppliers and so forth. But this question of the governance seems to be very important. How different interests come together, how, you know, maybe a certification scheme, the role of corporates, the role of governments, the role of, you know, manufacturers and brands. Oh, it is hugely. I mean, you know, uh, and we see movement in other areas as well. So, um, if you look at rubber, for example, we're now starting to see the rubber, the natural rubber industry, of which there are only six or seven major players globally, uh, get together and understand uh, more about how they can work together and create a unified approach to sustainable rubber sourcing. A friend of mine who um, used to be the head of agriculture for the Rainforest Alliance, Chris Willey, is always saying, you know, what about coconut? You know, no one ever talks about coconut. <laughs> uh, yes. We're always going on about palm oil. We're always going on about soy. We're going on about beef. But coconut, um, look how many hectares in the world are under cultivation for coconut. Look at the deforestation that's caused. Why is that not front and center in our lives? It isn't. Uh, it's because nobody's really focused on it. So there are all these different hidden commodities. You look around your kitchen cupboard um, and, you know, not, none of them are coming from very easy places. Um, you know, even with even with wheat. Uh, and and other you know other commodities which are perhaps closer to home, you know agribusiness and, and farming is, it can be just as challenging and just as tenuous financially as, as in those areas as in others. So it's um, you know that we're just seeing more and more interest I think in understanding where things come from uh, and how they got to be on our plate and what the impact of sourcing them has been. And I think you're right to mention the transparency agenda. That's going to be absolutely key. And, and at the moment at Innovation Forum, my time is spent uh, working out how we can do uh, joined up sort of conference initiative publishing push around the future of food using these, these themes of, of transparency, of traceability and technology. How are these, th- these three themes going to collide to assure consumers and to help drive change in supply chains for, for agriculture and that's something i'm trying to work out at the moment um not very successfully at the moment but i'm, I'm, I'm making some progress as before um, even adding in the layer of the implication of you know uh beef and meat and you know farming uh, from a climate change perspective well absolutely yes i mean you've probably seen it just as i have as a report that's just come out admittedly from a, a very anti-agribusiness ngo pointing out that uh, big meat and dairy are heating up the planet and they're doing so more than um, they're now responsible for the, the they're saying the world's top five meat and dairy corporations are now responsible for more annual greenhouse gas emissions than Shell, Exxon or BP. Um, I assume that I don't know whether that means collectively or individually. Um, but uh, yes, there's a lot more pressure now on these big companies which do not have the margins that the oil companies have. Now, I'm not suggesting we feel sorry for giant agribusiness, but, you know, you go and look at Cargill, go and look at what Cargill turns over, which is, I think, what, 110, 120 billion. Look at their net profit margins that they declare. You know, they're not mu- they're under 10 percent. They're not much if, t- if even touching 5 percent. In some cases, the margins for these businesses can be one, two, three percent. Um, so they don't necessarily have the financial leeway for, for quick systemic change that you might argue an oil and gas company could have done or in some cases in total's case has started to do to to adapt to climate change so um we're, we're definitely going to see more and more attention on this uh, as you know we see this generation switch and people wanting to eat less meat and have healthier diets and so on and at the same time we're seeing uh billions of people 
in emerging markets wanting to have more animal protein and dairy in their diet. Of course, yes, yes. Are, are you optimistic, Toby? I am. I am. I am optimistic. I think you have to be. I'm, I mean, if you look at if you you remember, I mean, I don't really remember the 1970s. I was sort of born halfway through, but I, I've I've studied them. It was a it was a terrible decade, an appalling decade, the 1970s. You know, look at things that happened even earlier. You know, the the horrors of World War Two. You know, in a way, we never had it so good, right? And you could say that for almost everybody on the planet. You know, if you look at the macro statistics around health, education, child mortality, uh, HIV, um, you know, there were there are there are obviously some some. Uh, some aberrations there but generally speaking life is a lot better for most people than it was 20 30 years ago um and i do think we will innovate our way uh, through a lot of these challenges a lot of them are really simple things that need to get fixed around incentives around infrastructure and so on which i think we understand that need to be fixed um the big fly in the ointment for me unfortunately is climate change you know, we're, we're looking at news today of northern Finland burning, you know, forest fires in the Arctic Circle, heat wave across Europe. Uh, and that's very, very worrying. So um, my only hope, well, my biggest hope is that all the climate change predictions are wrong and the climate deniers are somehow right. Um, I have a feeling they're not. Um, but it'd be nice if they were. And then we could meet all those other challenges, I think, through innovation um, and uh, and through the emerging technologies and and then using existing processes much better and in a much smarter way enabled by communications technology. So my hope is that we could uh, adapt to climate change as we go and mitigate where we can. And one of the most interesting areas in agriculture uh, that I'm starting to look at that we've run a couple of conference sessions on is this area of genome editing and the idea of being able to go into a crop's DNA and make it resistant to two, three, four disease of, degrees of climate change. Um, could that be part of the, uh, the solution, uh, the adaptation solution to climate change? Uh, it could well be, and it could save billions of lives if the technology is proven to work. However, on its own, that doesn't stop climate change. But um, we are seeing innovation starting to happen. For example, they're talking about if you feed seaweed to cows, you can massively reduce their methane emissions. Now, what if you could gene? What if you could gene edit, not genetically modify? They are different things, uh, in a way. Um, what if you could gene edit input crops to massively reduce livestock GHG emissions? That could be a huge win. Who knows how that could add up? Could you make? Uh, could you genome edit, uh, let's say, a, an oil palm tree to have much less environmental impact? Uh, that could happen. Um, you know, I, I did an interview recently on the Innovation Forum podcast series with um, three of the leading genome editing experts in the world. And they were talking about uh, Kevin Falter, one of them from the University of Florida. And he was talking about how um, all of the orange trees are dying in Florida from a pest which could be solved if only they were allowed to use the kind of technology which they're now talking about using in humans on the orange tree. You could actually save it. Um, so I am optimistic in the sense that these 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 innovations that are just starting to come out now. And by the way, I was told it now costs twenty thousand dollars to sequence uh, a plant genome. You know, it's by no means a big agribusiness alone area in the future. So I'm optimistic about all these things we've talked about. I just really hope that we can manage to, to get those things done in, in the face of climate change. And that's what makes climate change and greenhouse gas emissions reduction such a compelling issue. Uh, as we both sit here sweating at our desks talking on the phone in this in this European heat wave. Yes, absolutely. As somebody said, well, what, what, what did we do to deserve this except absolutely destroy the environment for the last hundred <laughs> years? Um, yes. yes. Um, 
No, um, technology, yes, our friend or not, um, uh, with, with all the potential that goes with it, the, the, it, so many other issues associated with that in terms of the ownership of seeds and the corporatization of you know, the farming industry. And What's next for Innovation Forum? You, you mentioned you, you, you're looking at uh, uh, taking on some other uh, issues in depth. Yeah, I mean, so uh, we've got a two-part plan, really. For Part one is to join up the areas that we'd be working on separately into something more coherent. So we've been doing conferences on and publishing and research around smallholder farmers separately from doing it around the sugarcane industry, separately from looking at deforestation, for example. So in November, November 6th and 7th in London, we joined them all up together to create a landscapes forum for business, which is proving to be very successful, where we can say, OK, let's let's stop having these silos across industries or commodities, and let's try and talk about what, what we have in common, which is the need for sustainable landscapes for agricultural and other natural resource production. So that's that's a big that's been a big step for us, um, but we, we, it looks like it's going to be a success. And then next year, we're going to convene two conferences, as I mentioned earlier, on the future of food, um, looking at how these issues of transparency, uh, traceability and technology are changing the way we approach food sustainability. Um, so I'm still working on those at the moment with my team and we're trying to create something that's coherent for our customers. And then next year, I think we're, we're going to start pushing more into how technology is changing society, um, not just in, in, say, agribusiness supply chains, but also um, if you look at you know, the ethics of artificial intelligence or automation. And, and that's going to be a big emerging area, I think, for us in the future. Uh, we chose the name Innovation Forum deliberately when we started the company so that it was sort of vague enough that we could do anything we wanted that we thought was interesting. And uh, I think what we want to do is establish the work we've been doing for five years in the agribusiness sector into these annual events where we can actually have really fascinating conversations and they sort of sit there in the calendar and then we can move on to focusing on um, how technology uh, in other areas is, is changing the world. So that's our, our plan for next year. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, Toby, building on the great work you're doing at the moment. And thank you so much for sharing all your vision and uh, insights and the work you've been doing here today. Well, it's a pleasure, Fergal. Thank you so much for, for the questions. You've given me a lot to think about. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 